fulfilled the Old Testament scripture, the Jews in the synagogue really rose up against him and worked to get the city authorities to arrest Paul so that Paul had to leave Thessalonica very quickly. Not only did the church face persecution from this Jewish community, it faced persecution and a, a very subtle persecution, albeit, from the city leaders, the Romans. Although full-blown persecution hadn't occurred when Paul wrote this, believers were being ostracized because of their belief that Jesus is Lord. Those three words, Jesus is Lord, posed a threat to the Roman government who held that Caesar, and Caesar alone, was Lord. Over time, Christians would be viewed as a threat to the stability of the empire. That's still on the horizon, but the early breezes of the winds of persecution were starting to blow. And so Paul writes to fortify the faith of these believers, and in his words, in his words, we find strength because he writes, led by the Holy Spirit. So let's hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Father, this morning already our hearts have been, been fed and lifted up as we have given you the glory for the great things you have done and you are doing. Lord, thank you. And Father, we have also been reminded of our assurance that is found in you. And the assurance we have as we take delight in submitting to you, submitting to your will and seeking you. We confess for when we have failed to do that. And we ask, Father, that this morning in the proclamation of your word, we would be renewed, edified, rebuked where necessary, and find the consolation of your grace in every word. Be glorified, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The Monastery of the Holy Trinity in Meteoria, Greece, is amazing to look at. Obviously, you can see it's on a cliff, a cliff that stretches 1,300 feet into the sky. This monastery was built over two years, 1475 to 1476. And thinking about how it was built simply blows my mind because some monk had to climb that wall find a way to rig up a block and tackle to lift up building supplies so that this monastery could be built. Ironically, this monastery has always been open to guests, anybody that wanted to venture to, uh, to visit there. Now, today, that trip is a little bit easier. Walkways have been built. But for hundreds of years, the only way to get up to visit that monastery was to step into the basket that was used to lift the equipment and to be pulled up by rope and tackle by a monk. The legend is told of one such group of visitors that were in the basket being pulled up when one of them looked at the monk that was their guide and asked, how often do you change the rope? 
And he responded by saying, oh, whenever it breaks. Not a lot of comfort in that, is there? You certainly don't want to be on the hard end of that breakage to find out the rope needed to be replaced because at that point, obviously, it's too late. When it comes to salvation, don't wait till it's too late. We need to have confidence in our salvation. The scripture teaches that every person will one day stand before God. Every person. And on that day, he will respond to you in one of two ways. Our Lord will either say, because of your faith in my son, Jesus Christ, enter into, enter into the glory that is prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Or God will look at you and say, depart from me. Because I never knew you. The question of certainty in your walk with God is of eternal importance. Now I know using the word certainty causes a red light to come up in the minds of many because they would argue you can never be certain of spiritual things. They would argue that at best speech of certainty is unattainable and at worst it's even considered arrogant. Yet I believe the New Testament teaches that we can know with certainty that we are right with God. That we can indeed have, as the song says, blessed assurance that we are among the redeemed. Paul writes with such clarity in verse 4. Notice how he starts there. For we know. That word know is a definitive statement. It's one filled with confidence and assurance. It's like making this statement, we know the sun is hot. We know that if you drop this microphone, it will fall to the ground because of gravity there are three things that Paul speaks with certainty about regarding this congregation. He knows for certain that they are part of the family of God. Notice in verse 4 the term he uses, brothers. Now, don't be thrown off by that language. Brothers is a family term, but it's also used to encompass both men and women. Paul is making a theological statement in the use of brothers that there are indeed no second-class people in the family of God. At this time, only the male heirs would receive an inheritance. So by referring to the entirety of the church as brothers, Paul is making the statement that male or female, rich or poor, free man or slave, you are part of the family of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Family. We are part of his family because we have been adopted. Born again. Adoption is a beautiful image of salvation. It is saying that where we were not, once were not part of God's family, He has made the, the work available and has accomplished the work so that we are made part of His family. And that is great comfort to a church undergoing persecution. To know that in the midst of adversity, your position in the family of God is not altered one iota. It's a comfort to know that when the world rejects you, there is a place where you belong because you are part of the family of God it's a reminder to us also that Trinity Baptist Church, as well as our brothers across the world, we are not a social club. We are not a fraternity. We are not a sorority. We have a kinship that is not based upon biological lineage or shared ethnicity. Ours is a kinship of the cross. We are a family united by faith in Jesus Christ. And notice the next description. We are a family beloved by God. So Paul states with certainty, not only are they part of the family of God, they are loved by God, beloved. This is the second thing that Paul knows 
without a hint of doubt. It's an incredible statement, isn't it? Church, you are beloved by God. The inconvertible truth of God's love is never changed by adversity or difficulty. Keep in mind the context. Because we experience suffering or persecution, it does not in any way mean that God's love has lessened for us one bit, nor does blessings in life mean that God loves us one bit more. But it's easy, so easy to fall into thinking of, if God loved me, then why? And you can fill in the blank there. Yet to a church facing persecution from religious leaders and suspicion from the government, Paul says, you are beloved. Circumstances never define the love of God. Never. The love of God is defined first and foremost by the cross of Jesus Christ. So when you begin to doubt the love of God because you are enduring adversity or because times are hard or the winds of pressure are blowing hard against you, hold on to the truth that God's love is certain because of the cross of Jesus Christ. If God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you to secure your redemption, how could circumstances ever change that? Rest assured in that that the love of God is working to bring glory to His name and working for the best in His people. Along these lines, Paul also knows this. They are chosen by God. Look at the language he uses. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, this is the word of election. And I recognize that this is a word that is, for many people, divisive and controversial. But I would encourage you, rather than trying to figure it out completely, to glory in it. It shouldn't be something that causes us to, to withdraw from others or to question our faith. It should be a simple reminder that God is God over our salvation from beginning to end. After all, doesn't the scripture teach us that we first love him? Why? Because he first loved us. The scripture is clear in Romans 3 that none seek God. Quoting Psalm chapter 4 and 5, none seek him. We are saved. Why? Because God sought us. We are saved because God acted in Jesus Christ to save us. So rather than controversy, I would encourage you, let this doctrine of election, this doctrine of being chosen, bring you comfort. Rather than division, learn to delight in it because it is the language of salvation. And rather than haughtiness, it should engender in us humility to say, I am like a turtle on a fence post. I have been saved and it wasn't by my works. It's something God did. And I will glory in that. Notice these three descriptions. Brothers, beloved, and chosen. Now, don't forget the first two words. We know. This is not language of guessing, not language of hoping. This is language of certainty. So how can Paul be so sure that this church in Thessalonica is beloved, is family, and has been chosen? The same way we can have certainty today. As we move on, notice how verse 5 begins. Because. So Paul's going to give us the reasons. And in this we gain insight into how we can gain certainty and assurance of our faith in God. And not be left guessing. Because the truth is, if we are not certain of our salvation, how could we even sleep soundly at night? How could we have confidence in any way? Our souls would always be weary from worry. Are we right with God? Are we right with God? So these characteristics, five characteristics that I 
put to you today from the text, use these as a mirror to look at your soul, to examine your heart. And let's start with the first one. When we start to ask, how can we know? We can know because of clarity on the content of the gospel. Notice how Paul begins. We know because our gospel came to you. Gospel means good news. The Greek word is euangelion, good message. And notice Paul sets it apart. He says, our gospel. The reason he does that is because there were other gospels that circulated. Now, I'm not referring to the gospels known as the Gnostic gospels that came around 200 years after Jesus. No, even prior to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, there were false gospels. Good news was not invented by the church. It was truly defined by the church, but even before Jesus, there were promises of a false gospel. When Jesus was born, according to Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus was reigning in Rome. He was the Caesar, the emperor. But when he was born, it was believed that he was the one who would bring in salvation. An inscription has been found dating back to 6 BC, and I apologize for the small font, so if you'll allow me. This was an, an inscription talking about the gospel, the good news of Caesar Augustus. It says, this most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura, the beginning of life and vitality. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest. That's a false gospel. Caesar couldn't do those things. He failed miserably in those things. So Paul wants to send out at the very beginning, his gospel is different. His gospel is that of Jesus as the incarnate God who lived a sinless life, who died upon the cross as a sacrifice in the place of those who deserve death. Sinners died condemned as a criminal and then on the third day rose again And it is the part of the crucified Savior that the world then and now finds unacceptable. Yet this is the content of the gospel that was preached and must be believed. So I ask you this morning, do you know this content? When asked to define the gospel, how would you respond? As part of the membership process here, it's something that the ministerial staff, when we have the opportunity, if it's to sit down with a child, we want to ascertain, do they know and have an understanding of the gospel? Because often, the first thing they express is, I want to be baptized. But baptism doesn't save. And even when we sit down with adults who are interested in membership, the first question is, what is the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? Because church membership does not save. Church membership should be based upon your salvation. Therefore, knowing the clarity of the gospel is crucial. But not just knowing it, but believing it. And the way belief is demonstrated is this. The second characteristic is that of demonstrable repentance look at verse 5 again the gospel came not only in word but also in power now the word power speaks of effectiveness it came with the ability to accomplish its purpose the gospel is powerful the gospel brings redemption the gospel brings change the gospel brings life out of death 
When the gospel was first preached by Jesus and the, the early church as recorded in the book of Acts, it was accompanied with power. Power demonstrated in the miraculous to add veracity to the truth of what was being preached. But when it comes to Thessalonica, whether it be in Acts or in this book, there are no records of miracles being done. There may have been, there may not have been. We simply don't know. Nevertheless, power was evident. Now, the power of the gospel is effective in bringing about redemption. It changes our relationship with God. And our faith is not just knowing the words of the gospel or saying the words of the gospel. Our faith is demonstrated in the effectiveness of the gospel in bringing about change. We do not want to be like the people Paul referenced in the book of 2 Timothy. Where Paul said they have the appearance of godliness. But deny its power. It's so easy to appear godly and yet have lives characterized by godliness. The power of the gospel is the power to break the stranglehold of sin. The power of the gospel is the power to change your life. It is the power to give hope to the hopeless and to give freedom to the prisoner. And that freedom and that hope is signified with one word, repentance. It is the power of the gospel that brings us to repent. That's how we demonstrate our belief. Turning from sin into the Lord and understand that repentance is a mark of the Christian life. John Calvin, in fact, wrote that it is the sign qua non of the Christian life. It is the ultimate identifying sign is that our lives are marked by continually turning to our Lord. Repentance is not a bad thing. It is the means of grace by which we experience the forgiveness of God. Do you know that power? Are you experiencing it? That effectiveness of the gospel. And it is the third mark that ties these together. The presence of the Holy Spirit. It came in power, effectiveness, and in the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is the thread that weaves all these things together. The Spirit empowers the preaching of the gospel and the Spirit brings conviction of sin. Now notice Paul doesn't define how the Holy Spirit was present or how he was at work in the church. And quite frankly, in some ways, the presence of the Holy Spirit can be hard to explain other than to say, you know it when you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. There is a subjective quality to that. And if you've ever experienced those moments where the Spirit was there and was heavy, there was a gravitas to that moment, there's no doubt you've experienced it. Many ways, it's like growing up, I would often visit my Uncle Bo and Aunt Bernice's farm. They had a very large working farm with cattle. And instead of putting up barbed wire behind the house to keep the cattle out of the yard, they strung up a single metal wire and electric fence. Now, as an eight or nine-year-old, our question was, is the fence on or off? Now, we weren't smart enough to listen to say, is it buzzing? Because that would have been a good sign. No, 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 no. For an eight, nine, or ten-year-old, there's just one way to prove it. Somebody's got to touch it. And if you live... We'll know it's off. When you touch it, you know. There is an element to the Holy Spirit that when you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit, you know it. But there are also marks of the Spirit. See, when the Spirit is present, there will be conviction of sin. He is the Holy Spirit. But that conviction of sin is meant to lead us to the comfort of the Spirit. Because you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit will point us to Christ in whom we find forgiveness for those sins. And that's where we can rejoice in the truth that, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. Which leads us to celebration. 
You see, the Spirit is present when we know there is conviction of sin, comfort and forgiveness, and celebration because of what God has done. Is the Spirit present in your life? Do you experience those three things? The Spirit will bring conviction, comfort, and celebration. It will also bring a deep conviction of the truth. Look again at verse 5. The gospel came in full conviction. This is assurance, a state of complete certainty. This refers to truth taking deep root in our hearts. Like a seed, a seed that blossoms and puts down roots so deep that no matter what storms blow, that tree stands. To know that no matter the circumstances, no matter the struggle, no matter the sin, God is God and his love is steady. See, this reminds me that I may not understand everything. You know, this brought to mind that my lack of understanding of all of God's truth does not in any way diminish his love and his grace. I thought of the words of that song, the great song by the legendary Sam Cooke. If you know it, you can sing it with me, at least in your mind. Don't know much about history. Don't know much about biology. Don't know much about the science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. I stand before you today that I may not be able to explain all the mysteries of the Trinity, but I know that God loves me. I may not be able to elucidate upon all the mysteries of the book of Revelation, but I know that God loves me. I may not be able to dive into the depths of predestination and election, but I know that God loves me. I don't have to understand God fully to know him truly. And this issue of deep conviction reminds us of that, that upon the cross and in the resurrection, he has purchased our salvation, and that no matter what trial I face, God is still God. No matter what adversity I endure, Jesus is still still my Lord. No matter what problems I face or persecutions occur, Jesus is still Savior. Churches, that deep conviction roots your soul. There are times where, yes, our faith will be tested in this world. But there comes a point where we have to say, even if not, He is still God. Do you know that deep conviction? There's a fifth characteristic I ask you to examine for. And that conviction is the pursuit of godliness. Look at what Paul writes next. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He goes to character. Now in chapter 2, he'll return to that theme. But here's why he introduces it now. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the other believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now follow the progression here. Paul says, you tested us, you knew we were men of character, and you sought to imitate us, to be like us, in that you received the word in much affliction. Now, there's an important order here. When it says you received the word, that precedes being an imitator. The reason that's important is that Paul is not teaching salvation via imitation here. He's not saying you are saved if you are able to imitate a godly lifestyle or the Lord Jesus for that matter because Paul is drawing himself as one who seeks to follow the Lord. Therefore, he says, imitate me as I seek to follow the Lord. No, the equation is this. Salvation leads me to seek to imitate those who are following Jesus because I need to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. I have the teachings of Christ in the Word from Genesis to Revelation. Now I need help to know what it looks like to flesh that out. 
It's amazing that when we love something, when we get a hobby or something we are eager to know about, how we seek out someone to teach us how to do it. Think of all the classes that are offered online now through YouTube or various platforms of master classes. You want to learn how to cook? You can learn how to cook from the best. And how eagerly we sign up for those to learn how to do this. Why is it that when it comes to faith, we get the idea, it's just Jesus and me? We may take classes to learn how to, how to knit, but then when it comes to our faith, we think, nope, just me and the Bible, that's all I need. It's simply where individualism of the West has slowly crept into the church where we forget that biblical Christianity is about community. It's about coming together as a family where we encourage and we admonish one another and we lead each other to know more of the Lord. We need those who, like Paul, will step up and say, be an imitator of me, not because I'm all that, but because I'm trying to follow Jesus. We need to open our lives to share with one another so that we might help encourage and instruct. And that's for all believers. It's not just for the ministers or not just for the teachers. It's for us sharing life together so that we can say with Paul, you received the word with joy and much affliction. Five characteristics. we come to the Lord's table, it's a reminder of time, the time we need to take to examine ourselves. We don't come to take communion to, in order to be saved. We come to communion to remember. When Paul admonishes the church at Corinth, he admonishes them to take time to judge yourselves, to examine your hearts. To be sure that our focus is upon Jesus as we come to the table. remember reading in the words of the late Calvin Miller where he said, if we rush into the presence of God, we will rush out of the presence of God. So this morning with this passage in 1 Thessalonians as a backdrop, Pastor Nathan's going to come and lead us into a time of preparation. A time of preparing our hearts so that we might be ready to come focusing fully upon Jesus as we share in communion together. Pastor Nathan. The church, would you hear the Lord speak as I read the words of Psalm chapter 15, Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Church, as we prepare our hearts for the observance of the Lord's Supper, we would be wise, as Pastor Mark said, to recognize that we are not eating alone. Rather, we are coming together as one, bringing the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ squarely into our view.
And this is worthy of reflection, especially after the words that we heard from 1 Thessalonians and from Psalm chapter 15. And yes, while we are wise to examine ourselves before taking the Lord's Supper, we do so recognizing that on our own we will never really be worthy participants. For who could ever be sufficiently worthy to share in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ? Who can stand in his tent? Who can live on the mountain of God with God? Only God. Only Jesus. And so we come confessing our sins with boldness, clinging to the robes of Jesus, our eager sponsor there on the mountain of God. So let me invite each of you to bow your heads and to, as we say in our house, just talk to the Lord about your sin. He already knows you're not going to surprise him. So just tell him. Take a few moments to admit that you are not blameless. Take a moment to admit to the Lord that you've used your tongue not only to bless God, but also sometimes to slander your neighbor. Would you admit that sometimes you care more about what other people think than what God thinks? Confess that sometimes you have neglected the presence and even the conviction of the Spirit, quenching Him. Would you join me in confessing that you do not seek godliness with as much vigor and intensity as you ought to? And now, with a portion of our sin in view, let me now invite you to turn with a smile to the confidence that we have in the gospel. It is by God's grace that his word has come to you and that you've understood it. Would you praise God that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance? Thank God that by faith you may possess the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh God, our Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you with complex hearts. We grieve our sin as it is coming into our view. We grieve the effect that it has on others. We grieve the effect it has on our relationship with you. Please help us to feel something of the weight of our sin and to come to see it as appalling, destructive, and unattractive. But more than that, we rejoice that forgiveness is ours through the work of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we glory in his accomplishments and we take comfort to know that we may be fully forgiven when we confess and repent of our sins. So help our hearts now to be full as we eat this bread and drink of this cup.